the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this program is dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. All you have to do is call us. Now, obviously, you can hear that I'm still suffering with some voice issues. So it would be a lot better for the program and for me if you would call. If you have any questions, just dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the free KSLR mobile app is the safest way to, to call. Just hit call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. When I woke up this morning, I think Paula kind of liked this voice. The problem is it never lasts. It's just the allergies and stuff going on. So I'm just going to stumble through this. I didn't want to not do the program today. So let's see what we've got. Here is a first question that was sent in from our email inbox, anonymously. Uh, Hello, Pastor. I have a friend of 30-plus years. She says she's a Christian, but she lives like a Corinthian. Uh, She has a bipolar 19-year-old son, as as well as lots of physical pain because of various medical conditions. She uses prescription and illegal drugs and sex to cope with her life. Her usual excuse is that she deserves her sins because of what she has to deal with. Now, I'm not one to talk as I also live that way in the not-too-distant past, and she is aware of it. Um, but the Spirit of Jesus convicted me, and now I'm returning to my first love and doing the things I did when I first got saved. I know if I tell her she needs to stop, she'll agree with me, but she'll also use her favorite defense phrase about a pot calling the kettle black, and ultimately, she won't change. I prefer to return uh, or turn to Jesus and be forgiven. And occasionally, when I feel prompted, I'll ask her to read a section or a book of Scripture. I can't check upon her because we live hundreds of miles apart. Is there something more that I can do? Thank you for your time. Anonymous, um, there's only a couple of things. First, let me just say this. I'm grateful that you've returned uh, to your first love. Uh, hang in there. Um, our, our purpose isn't to judge other people, um, but you're right to be concerned about this woman's profession of faith. Um, nobody deserves anything. The truth is we're already born condemned. John chapter three, Jesus says it. Um, we deserve to be judged and punished for our sins, but God has provided a way out. And the key here is Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And we know that loving Jesus, believing in him, is the only way we can escape punishment for our sins. So all you can do is pray for her. You can continue to set an example in your own life 
about what it means. She can see, or at least from the distance that you're separated, she can tell that you've got something going on in your life now that she's missing out on. But remember, always tell her the truth. Just tell her, Christians, whether you think you deserve it or not, Christians do not live like this. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, both say that people live like this. There's a long list of sins in there. And the idea is this is the standard way of life for them. This is the, the uh, what other people would see. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be afraid because of your past. In fact, it's because of your past that you can stand and tell her what she needs to hear. So pray for her, pray for her, pray for her, and you stay close to Jesus. Anonymous, thank you for your for your question. Let's go to Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Sounds like you've got mountain cedar. Oh boy, do I ever. <laughs> Me too. I was out today and, and it was just it just seemed to it was just horrible. Um, I, there's, this isn't a Bible question, but this is a question about, this is a phrase that I've heard several times, and I heard it in a movie recently, and the phrase is, the devil is in the details, and I, I have never for the life of me ever been able to figure out what that means. Have you heard that before? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's certainly nothing spiritual, Cindy. It's it's just meaning pay attention to the details because if you don't, there'll be the things that come up and and bite you in the rear end. So that's what it means by that. But there's nothing spiritual at all. It just means that if you don't pay attention to the details, you are going to find that you left some things undone, and uh, that's never a good thing. Oh, that makes a lot more sense now. Because for the life of me, I, the minute I heard the word devil, it's just like this little wall went up, and I kind of phased out on you know whatever else <laughs> came after that. And and I, I've always been curious about that. Well, that that really makes a whole lot of sense. Thank you. I hope Thanks, you'll be better soon. I'll do my best. Thank you. You know, it's <laughs> amazing. Go ahead. Huh? I said, go ahead. Okay. Maybe if we just don't breathe. <laughs> I'm going to start wearing a mask, I think. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it very, very much. You know, I came to Texas without any allergies at all. And after these years, for about the past five years, Mountain Cedar's really been getting me. And every time somebody says, but I'm so glad summer's over. I want cold weather to come. I want the season to come. I always remind him that Mountain Cedar comes with it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Ed. Uh, he says, "Why do you think the disciples didn't recognize Jesus after his resurrection?" Well, Ed, there's a couple things. Uh, I, I think that the obvious thing here is that the last thing in the world that they were expecting in the natural realm is to see a man they watched die. I think we would all be so shocked, unable to understand um, the impact of seeing somebody that we watch die suddenly now alive. I think there's two other explanations. I think one of them is that we know Jesus' face was beaten so badly that it was not recognizable in human form. And Jesus carries those scars to this very moment in heaven. Jesus carries those scars. And so what we understand is that, one, they weren't expecting to see Jesus. Then when they saw him, their first thought would have been, well, how could this be him? I think there's one other thing. I think Jesus, in his glorified, resurrected body, looked different. I was trying to explain to our church just this past week in a, in a Bible study that I did, how Jesus' scars could be grotesque and beautiful at the same time. I, I think that's the kind of thing that his disciples were having difficulty with as well. He's supposed to be dead. They, they were without hope. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. And he still has the scars, but he's got this glory around him. And I think yeah, that's the reason why. My initial instinct, however, I think is the most compelling they just didn't expect to ever see him again. And when he showed up, wow. 
Here is a question from Maddie. I don't know whether it's a male or a female. Uh, did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? And which account is right? Well, Maddie, both of them are right. Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once toward the end of his ministry, just before he was to go to the cross. Now think about this. If Jesus did this one thing twice, to announce his ministry and then to sign off on his ministry, this is something that's really, really important. Jesus would walk around in both occasions, and he would see uh, the money changers taking advantage of the poor. He would see the religious leaders taking advantage of the poor. With, with the money exchange and selling what they would say was acceptable offerings. And Jesus would basically say, look, you've turned my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. The last thing God ever had in his mind or heart. You now, it's an infinite mind and an infinite heart. But the last thing he ever had was that in his father's house, the poor would be taken advantage of. The second to the last thing you would ever have on his mind or heart is that there would be people actually getting rich off of so-called serving God. Now, Maddie, I think those are things that we really need to take seriously as we relate Jesus cleansing the temple into our church culture. Now, obviously, we don't have temples, and uh, that's where the similarity ends. But what Jesus was doing was revealing his heart, first towards the poor. We need to reveal uh, the heart of Jesus when poor people come into our church. We need to do what we can. We need to put them with everybody else on the same level, showing no partiality or favoritism. Everybody who walks in, if I declare from the pulpit that this is good news for the poor, it needs to be good news for the poor. It's not good news if people are looking down on them. We have had uh, a lot of homeless people come to our church from time to time, uh, especially uh, right after Joy of Jesus, where we minister to so many. And I'm so proud of our church body because our church body really, really loves on them. I think one of the reasons Joy of Jesus is such a big deal is because we're not just handing out like an assembly line food when people walk by. When they sit down in the park and eat, our people sit down and eat with them and talk with them. I mean, like they're real people. Well, Jesus' heart for the poor was on display. But I also think that we need to be very, very careful about the money that we who serve the Lord for a living take as a result of our service. I believe with all of my heart that a pastor should not live above the, the average means of the people in his church. We have some wealthy people. We have a lot of poor people. We've got a lot of people in between. And the way I'm supposed to live is at a level where I can meet with all of them. And so sort of the, the medium range is that place. And we have far too many, Maddie, far, far, far too many people who are preaching and driving most expensive cars, living in the most expensive homes or gated communities, people who take such large salaries from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that they can no way possibly identify with the people in their church. And they wouldn't be approachable to the poor people in the church. I think by cleaning the temple twice, Jesus was giving us an example of just exactly how he feels about that. So, Maddie, I hope that explains it. Here is a question from Kevin. Pastor Ron, I know Trump is speaking tonight about a border wall. I read an article today stating that uh, his supporters only want a wall to keep people of color out of our country. What are your views, and do you think a wall will work? Um, Kevin, I don't know the article that you're speaking about, but I think that's typical um, obfuscation from the left. Again, I'm, I'm not going to answer politically here, but those who are opponents of Trump, and in particular in the media, 
Um, they seem to decide that their job is to put Trump in the worst possible light. And I think it is arrogantly judgmental, uh, monumentally so, to say that somebody who voted for Trump or somebody who supports Trump's border wall is a racist and we want to go back to those times when America was white and those times are never going to happen. The world is changing. I mean, just think about my own contribution to a changing world. I married a beautiful black woman. I have kids that are a product of a white guy, a very white guy and a black woman. Um, things are changing, interracial relationships, uh, relationships from different cultures. Uh, they're not shocking now. You know, when I met Paula 48 plus years ago now, uh, interracial marriage and interracial dating was completely different than now. And we lived in cities, uh, I did, that were primarily white, at least growing up. It changed very quickly in Southern California. But to judge people who say they want a wall to protect our country by calling them racists, I think is a horrible, horrible sin. Um, Kevin, I, I have no position on a wall. I'm not an expert. I don't know if a wall will work or not. Uh, I certainly think that we could find other ways and save the $5 billion that he wants to build that wall for better purposes. At the same time, we're a nation of law, and the law needs to be upheld. If the law is not going to be upheld, then we don't need to have the law. And I think our country has got some really important decisions to make. Do we want a country of open borders or do we want borders that are protected and secured? Until this nation as a whole makes that decision, then we don't know what's going to work or what's not going to work. So here's my position, Kevin. I'm sharing this as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My job is to love anybody and everybody who comes in front of me. My job is to treat them the way Jesus would want them treated. My job, in part, is to pray for people that they would get saved. And for me not to treat somebody just because they're from somewhere else or because they look different than I do. To treat them unkindly, to be unwelcoming, would be a sin against my Jesus. See, I'm not, and nobody listening to this program, by the way, nobody listening to this program is given the task of deciding whether or not a wall should be built. Those decisions are going to be made way over our head. Our job as Christians is to love anyone and everyone who makes it here into our churches, into our homes, and we're to tell them about Jesus. I think, Kevin, that we need to keep our eyes on him. Colossians says, our hearts and our minds, heart the place of affection, the, the, the mind the place of a decision. We've got to decide that we're not going to get caught up in all this political name-calling. Here's what I know for sure about both sides of this divide. Nobody's telling the truth. Nobody's being honest with the American people. Everybody has an agenda all of their own. And so as Christians, I'm pleading with people, pleading with people to have only one position, and that's the one that supports Jesus Christ. So Kevin, I hope that helps. It's the best I can do. Let's go to Ray calling from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. My phone was just getting crazy, and it's not a cell phone. It's a landline, but anyway... If I lose you, then that's the way it is. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking that uh, the way the program started off, boy, when when people our age and of the sort, things were way different, more different than many people even realize. And it, and it dawned on me that uh, the first caller had mentioned uh, – Kind of a, I don't know, maybe a colloquialism or something, but I remembered 
that uh, boy, it's awful hard to to forget stuff that you've heard. You can't unhear stuff. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, I I remember way back when I was young, um, there were a lot of things going on. They, for one thing, was like Confucius say, and there was a whole bunch of that. You know, kind of cute sayings and you know jokes or whatever. Uh, one time, my mom was having a having a, a, a cocktail party, <laughs> which was popular back then, and she was telling Polish jokes. And this uh-huh. fellow heard a couple, and and uh, then he went up and asked her, "Well, well, uh, do, do you speak Polish?" She goes, "Oh, no, no." Uh-uh. And he goes, "What? Well, do you understand Polish?" <laughs> she, "No, no, I don't." And, and he says, well, I'm Polish. How does it feel to be dumber than a Polak? <laughs> and, and so, you know, it just, it just reminded me of how different things were back then. And uh, I don't know if that's worth anything, but I thought it was kind of interesting. And I'll get off and let somebody call with something worthwhile. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it very, very much. You, uh, you know, when, when, when the first caller called in, I was thinking, how difficult is it to explain to people not from this country the phrase that we use? Now, uh, for for the audience, uh, I have preached uh, in foreign countries and, and using a, an interpreter. And there are things that I say. I remember one time in, in Mexico where I, I said... Uh, you know, we come to a fork in the road, and and the interpreter couldn't figure out a way to communicate that in Spanish. And um, our, sometimes our 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 phrases don't make any sense. Um, when we communicate, we got to be able to communicate. Ray, one thing I will comment on as well is that our country was better when people didn't have such thin skin. Um. Jokes were jokes. Nobody took them personal. Um, and today, you know, you just can't say anything at all sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer says, Pastor on a man I just started dating is telling me that Jesus was not Jewish, that he was black. I've never heard that before, so can you help me? Jennifer, yes, let me help you immediately. Don't date this man. This is usually the back, the black Israelite movement or the, the, the black Hebrew movement. Um, their doctrine is heretical. Um, there's no doubt Jesus was a Jew. Um, salvation comes from the Jews. Uh, and these are people with an agenda. They're unreasonable. Uh, and they're not Christians. So stop dating him. Wait for... A nice Christian man, somebody that you can watch the fruit in his life. Um, but this is something that's been going around for a long time. Uh, we have this need to remake Jesus in our image. And remember, we were made in his image. It's not the other way around. So um, don't date him, Jennifer. That's the best help I can give you. Save you a lot of pain. Pray for him, but don't date him. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we're inside three minutes for this half of the program. One wants to know why do some churches put more emphasis on the Bible than just following Jesus by the Holy Spirit? One, if I understand your question correctly, um, just let the Spirit lead and guide. Well, the, the the reason we put emphasis on the Bible is because unless you know it, unless you know who Jesus is, unless you know what the Holy Spirit's come to do you can't follow Jesus you know this whole idea well you know I don't need to study scripture I don't need to be in the Bible I just kind of follow the leading of the spirit I had a man um, not t- too many years ago come to me and said yeah my whole life is just getting the warning and I just kind of wait for Jesus to lead me someplace he leads me to grocery store here or leads me to a work site there and um, you know I just kind of wait until he tells me what to do Nah, that's no way to follow Jesus. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's just a man who doesn't want to be under authority. 
So the Bible is indispensable. The Bible reveals to us who Jesus is. And people who don't know the Word of God, people who aren't invested in it, Juan, what they end up doing is going here and going there and never really doing or accomplishing anything for the kingdom of God because they don't know Jesus. Our God is a God of order. Our God is a God who's given us instructions, wonderful instructions. We don't have to wonder about what to do. We can simply do it. And if we will, then the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, the, the Spirit is given to those who obey. As we obey him, then the Lord gives us even more opportunities. So this isn't about goosebumps or feeling good. Following Jesus is hard work. And to do it, you've got to know who he is. You've got to know where he's going. I think one, I'm doing a, Paul and I are doing a marriage conference this weekend in Garland, Texas. And the hardest thing that we see is people who have no idea who Jesus really is and they have no idea where they're going to keep changing their minds. We have 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left. Here is a question that was sent in by Anonymous from our mobile app. Can you help me with Titus 211? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Is this something I can use to explain how God reaches out to people who've not received the gospel, like the pygmies in Borneo, kind of like David's famous proclamation in Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And then he says, because if salvation has appeared to all men, then all men should be able to see. Is that too naive to say? Anonymous is not naive at all. In fact, um, the context is slightly different in Titus chapter 2. Um, so I'm going to go back a couple of verses and, and um, um, hopefully help you understand. But in principle, you're absolutely right. There's nobody that is seeking God who won't have God reveal himself to him. It's just that simple. The problem is we're not really seeking that's why when I talk about other religions, you know, if you believe in anything else, I have people say all the time, well, what about people who were born and raised in a Muslim home or in a Buddhist home? Um, they're without excuse. If you claim some entity as God, it's our personal responsibility to find out if that God really is God. That's why Christians stand on this solid rock that is Jesus Christ, the, 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 the empty tomb, proclaims the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be God in human flesh. In Titus chapter 2, and this is uh, actually Titus chapter 2.12, is one of my favorite verses because it's so practical. Um, Paul is talking to Titus, um, um, and he's, he's, Titus is a pastor, and he's talking about, how, here's how to deal with people that you're going to encounter. He says, going back to verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and do not to, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, remember, in the, in the ancient world, slaves outnumbered freemen four to one in the, in the Roman Empire. This was not a black-white issue at all. It was an economic issue. And there were slaves who were forced by being in debt. There were slaves uh, who were slaves because they were born into slavery. There were slaves who chose to remain into slavery because they they liked their slave owner, and um, you know they were they were good to them. It was a very very harsh world. And so he's simply saying, "Here's why you do it." He says, "For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men." Also, one other thing, when I said not to steal from them in verse 10, 
Uh, there's a very definitive statement about Jesus being God. So they make the teaching about God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, attractive. So he's called God there. And his basis, the foundation for making this proclamation is that God has appeared to everyone and everyone is out without excuse. Now, when he uses the word it teaches us, that's the grace of God from verse 11. You know, we, we have a tendency to let grace be something that goes in one ear and out the other. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Um, grace is a free gift. We believe by grace. We walk by grace. Grace meets us afresh every morning. And sometimes we use grace to justify sinning. Oh, God has forgiven me and I, I need to do this now or this makes me happy. And we're trampling on the grace of God. The next verse, the next verse says, it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God, another pronouncement of the deity of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is such important instruction. What it means is that if you're really walking in the Spirit, if you're walking in grace, the grace tells you to say no to sin so that you can say yes to Jesus. And that salvation has appeared to all men for sure. And everyone is without excuse. But in this case, it's used to describe a way of life. And everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, Titus, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. It cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed. They have nothing bad to say about us. And then that verse about teaching slaves, what kind of reaction do you think we'd get today if we taught slaves to stay as slaves? It's okay. Just serve Jesus. Be a good slave for Jesus. The world would come undone. And yet the Bible is so practical. It deals with the world as it is, not with the world as we want it to be. So I think that's an important passage of Scripture. Thank you very, very much for the question. Anonymous. Uh, you know, that also kind of brings me back to the question that was asked about the wall and stuff. You know, um, people in my age bracket we have a tendency to look back at the good old days. I was telling our church just this Sunday, um, maybe it was Friday night, I don't know, but, but as, you know, we don't live in an Aussie and Harriet world anymore. And instantly there was silence in the room. I said, wait a minute, you don't know who Ozzie and Harriet is? Anybody who knows who Ozzie and Harriet is, stick their hands up. There's only like a couple of hands. And there's no value in wishing the world was the way it used to be. That's not going to happen. Acts 17 says that we are born and placed where we are because this is the place and the time where it's easier to find God and to be used by and for God. And we have to be realists about the way the world is. You know, the Make America Great Again hats. I'm pretty old. I don't remember America being really, really great in terms of godliness. We were more naive. We were greater prudes. The world was. Individually, people had all kinds of secret sin going on. I remember a television show. Um, Lucy and Ricky. Where they wouldn't say Pregnant. Other husband, wife, or family shows where the husband, wife had twin beds. The world's never going back there. 
And what we've got to learn to do is to shine our lights brightly in the world that is, not the world the way we want it to be. That's my sermon for the hour. Here is a question from our mobile app from Lewis. How long were the Israelites in slavery in Egypt? Um, I've read in Scripture 400 years and 430 years. Uh, I've read uh, timelines with the math used to add up the lifespans of the genealogies that's actually 210 to 350 years. Uh, I know Scripture never contradicts what's going on with the time span and dates regarding uh, Israel's time in slavery. Um, I think, Lewis, the, the, the references are to uh, 400 years as sort of an about time. Um, we, we can't recreate a timeline and get an accurate history. Uh, we know that the law was given to Moses 430 years after Abraham, Abram then, was justified because he believed God's word. Um, so um, I, think, I think it's accurate enough to say uh, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Um, I don't think it's intended to be specific and certainly doesn't represent any kind of contradiction at all. Um, I think any math that's used to add up the lifespans uh, of the people through the genealogies is going to be difficult because entire generations are skipped in some places. Um, it's not intended to give us a comprehensive list of all of the people. Um, the, the, the names in the genealogies are given to us because those names are important in the development of our understanding of Jesus Christ. So that's the best I can do, Lois. There isn't uh, any reliable source to give you an exact date. The Bible says they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, uh, and I think that's uh, that's sufficient, about 400 years. 340-9585, here's a question from Leticia. She says, I think the wine Jesus made from water was non-alcoholic. I come from an alcoholic family and can't believe Jesus would make something that hurts people. Well, Leticia, I sympathize and empathize with you. Uh, I think um, the damage I've seen done uh, in homes and families and people's lives from alcohol uh, in my almost 24 years here as a pastor has been so horrific. I wish that nobody would ever go near an alcoholic beverage. I wish the Bible said over and over and over, drinking is sin. Uh, nothing good comes from drinking, period. Nothing good. But the wine Jesus made from water was alcoholic wine. Not only that, it was the best possible quality of alcoholic wine. Now remember, the alcoholic levels were much less than, than they are in our modern day. We also need to remember that wine was a stable because there was no completely reliable source of water. Paul tells Timothy to, to drink some wine to settle his stomach. Uh, the water in the region caused all kinds of problems for people. And so he said, drink some wine to settle your stomach. Wine would have been served at virtually every dinner. Every time you'd have guests, there would be wine out. That was a cultural thing then, and it's a cultural thing now. Let me tell you this, Leticia. One of the things that God brought from your alcoholic family is you. So he did pretty good work. So don't focus on the pain that was done in your family. Just understand that God's hand has always been on you. And whatever pain was caused by alcohol or relatives drinking alcohol wasn't God's fault. But don't let your opinions or your desires of heart change the truth about what was written. It was alcohol. It was great wine. And Jesus rescued the party. 
So I hope that helps. You know, one of the things that just is so hard for me, I've never had a drink, so it's one of those things where uh, I don't understand the, 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 the attraction. I understand the addictive properties of alcohol. But all of us need to understand the damage that's caused when alcohol is abused. I grew up in a home where both of my parents drank. If they drank too little, then they were mean. If they drank too much, then it just got embarrassing. Um, what it does to kids is unthinkable. Here is a question from Natalie. She says, what does it mean in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels? Uh, Natalie, I'm actually in uh, Hebrews uh, now on Friday nights. Um, so this is fresh in my mind. Um, uh, the writer, I believe the Apostle Paul, is quoting um, a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 8, verse 5. And... In this passage of scripture, Jesus is being demonstrated as being superior to Moses, uh, a hero of the Jews, and to angels. Uh, angels were worshipped. They've always been worshipped. And Jesus was made a little lower. The idea there is that he was humbling himself. And the thing that is a little lower than the angels is mankind. So this is a reference in the psalm. Uh, predicting Jesus becoming human, God becoming human, made a little lower than the angels for a time. And then, of course, because of his obedience, Philippians 2 says God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, a name that every knee would bow and every tongue confess. So this is simply a reference to his leaving heaven and becoming a human, a baby human at first, but a human. Thank you, Natalie. Appreciate it. Uh, Jeffrey wants to know, i got two kind of related Bible questions. Uh, Jeffrey wants to know, why is it important to memorize the Bible? Um, David said, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. I think when we memorize the Bible, Jeffrey, um, we can stand our ground, Paul says, against the fiery darts of the enemy. Um, just quoting scripture uh, is a powerful tool in fighting spiritual warfare, but it's also an important tool for hearing from the Lord. Now, when you say memorize the Bible, um, I'm not a I'm not a huge Bible memorizing guy. Uh, we don't have our church going through those kind of drills. Um, our children uh, memorize Bible verses. That's kind of a first step and in introduction when they're very very young. But, but we want to just expose them to the truth of the word. We believe that God's word is supernatural. And when we hide it in our heart, then God does supernatural things with it. Um, the fruit at our church over the years has been amazing. At the same time, um, I'm not a good memory guy in the sense that the way I memorize things is to touch it over and over and over. So when I'm quoting scripture, I'm only quoting it, not because I sat down to memorize a bunch of verses or parts of the Bible. I am quoting it because I've touched it so many times reading the Bible that it becomes like second nature. So it's important to know the word. Obviously, it's important to do what the word says. But if you'll just, instead of focusing on memorizing a scripture... Or, or a chapter, or a book even. we got some people here with great memories. Um, they've memorized whole chapters, and, and in a couple of cases, entire books. Uh, I had a, a kid in our academy come by and say, uh, Papa Ron, I, I memorized Jonah. I said, well, what chapter? He said, no, all of it. And I said, seriously? So lay it on me. And he did. He did. Now imagine, he's going to be able to share a lot of truth with people. I think when we really get into the Word, we hide it in our heart, then and only then do we get to that place 
where God will put people in front of us. I, I one time memorized Philippians. Uh, I just wanted to see if I could do it. And while I was memorizing Philippians, it's impossible, Jeffrey, to understand how many times Philippians came out of my mouth when God put people in front of me. They asked me a question, um, and not not just at church, but I'm talking about everywhere. We're out sharing Jesus, Paul and I. And they'll ask a question, and and I'll be able to say, you know what, I just read this today. Philippians says, and some people got saved during that Christmas time. So that's why it's important to memorize the Bible. You just need to know it. You need to know it. Here's a related Bible question. Bill wants to know, are we supposed to take the Bible literally or use it only as a general guide for our lives? Bill, um, whenever you can take it literally, we should. Um, Whenever and wherever possible. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Jesus in the upper room. Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. We can't take that literally. Now, unfortunately, some denominations do. But we can't take that literally because Jesus was still in his unbroken body. So clearly Jesus was speaking figuratively there. Uh, In the Psalms, it says the trees of the field clap their hands. We're talking about all creation worshiping God. uh, But we know trees don't have hands. Uh, The blast from God's nostrils is referenced in the poetic writings. Well, God is spirit, the Father's spirit. He doesn't have a face like you and I have a face. He doesn't have a nose. So again, that's figurative language. And Bill, I don't think it's hard to understand when something is intended to be taken literally as opposed to when we're to take something poetically or figuratively. But the only way to have a working relationship with your Bible that makes any sense at all is to, whenever you possibly can, take it literally. When the Bible says flee from sexual immorality, that's not a general guideline. We're to flee, to run away. We remember Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. When the Bible says put on Christ, that means people look at us there to see Jesus in us rather than seeing us. We're to be a reflection of him instead of a reflection on him. Those are the things that we're to take literally. And when people start spiritualizing or allegorizing the the, the word, the Bible, then they're not far at all from discounting it altogether. So hold on to it tightly. It's literal. It's intended to be literal as well. We're inside four minutes now, so let me get a, see if I can get this question. Here's one from Carlos. Pastor Ron, I get confused when reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Is there a primary message, or is it just a lot of different messages? Carlos, your Bible is, is, is one glorious volume containing 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 or so years. And there is one message, just one message, and it's the Old Testament all the way. Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22-21. The message is Jesus. That's the message. It's always been about Jesus. That's the only thing God has to say. One of the things I tell my church here is if they'll read the Old Testament looking for Jesus, the Old Testament will come alive for them. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, my first study in Hebrews last Friday night, Since uh, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us. And literally in the Greek, it's in son. In other words, everything that God has to say, he said in the person of Jesus Christ. So in the book of Hebrews, as an example, we don't hear from Jesus Jesus isn't the subject of the passage. Jesus is the message of Hebrews. 
please excuse me, my voice went out again. Uh, Jesus is the message of Hebrews. And Jesus is the message of all of our Bibles. So, Carlos, you and Jesus read together. You'll get instruction from Jesus, but it's all about Jesus. Last question today will be from Greg. What do people have to do to make sure they're really saved? Well, Carlos, a couple of things. You've got to be with Jesus. Of course, you just have to believe. But whenever we kind of go on our own, we get some distance between us and the Lord. We end up the enemy shouting doubts in our ear. What makes you think you're saved? Uh, If you believe in Jesus Christ with all of your heart, if you've acknowledge that he's your Lord that means he's in charge you're not in charge, he is if you've asked forgiveness of your sins then you're as saved as you can be unfortunately a lot of people say Jesus is Lord a lot of people hope they're saved but they don't live like they are Jesus said if you love me you will obey me And everybody who's obeying Jesus, anybody who loves him, I mean, really loves him, has no doubt. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And when you're walking in the Spirit, when you're abiding in Christ, Greg, there's no doubt. People don't have to get baptized. They don't have to go to church. They don't have to do any of these things to get saved. All they have to do is deal with Jesus. Hope that makes sense. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you so much for bearing with my voice. Pray that it'll be better tomorrow. I've got a Bible study to do as well. You've been listening to The Word and Stand Up For Life. Lord willing, I'll be back at 4 o'clock tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On For Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.